Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the world of wine, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. I'm here with Clay Moritzson, Moritzson Wines, and let's talk about Zinfandel, a grape which you know very well. Yes. Um, so Zinfandel is a difficult grape to work with. You, yeah. call, you call it the heartbreak grape variety. And why is that? What makes Zinfandel so difficult? Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> um, there are a million things that make Zinfandel difficult. Um, you know, I, I think if you want to produce a great wine, it doesn't matter what the varietal is, Cabernet, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Zinfandel, it starts with, you know, having, you know, the perfect plant, get back to basics, planted in the perfect place. And, you know, it wasn't accident that, you know, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay have flourished in Burgundy. You know, it wasn't accidental that, you know, Cabernet and the related varietals have flourished in Bordeaux. You know, it wasn't always Cabernet, Merlot, and Cabernet Franc in Bordeaux. You know, you plant and you experiment and you see what works best and what produces the high quality. And Zimbadel follows that exact same you know, routine or exact same qualification. And so if we're saying that, you know, let's have a standardization that we know we're growing the right varietal in the right right place. So when it comes down to farming and, you know, the the challenges in those places, I would contend that nothing holds a candle to Zinfandel. And it's not to say that making Pinot Noir is easy. It's just Zinfandel represents, you know, exponentially more challenges in my book. Um, think about bunch morphology. So let's start there. Zinfandel is the largest buried of the the noble varietals that we grow in California. You know, oftentimes twice the circumference of Pinot Noir Cabernet. So huge berries. So how does that translate to difficulty? Well, big berries mean that you have a higher juice to skin ratio. And any winemaker worth their salt knows and understands that the primary phenolic compounds that we want to extract come from the skins. So the bigger that berry gets, the more difficult it gets for extraction. Big berries also create challenges on the farming side because they create really tight clusters. And tight clusters not only make it more prone to botrytis because you have less wind flow, but Zimpanel is one of the only varietals that we, we use the term will rot from the inside out. So you could have an absolute perfect growing season with no moisture, no rain, and still have bunch rot in Zinfandel because the berries are so big that they will crowd other berries out. And that one berry that gets pushed down because the other berries are so big will rot from the inside out. Also unique bunch morphology, Zinfandel tends to have uneven pedicel and or peduncle lengths. And so Almost all varietals are somewhat conical in shape and Zinfandel follows that pattern, but you have these uneven lengths of, and what the pedicel peduncle is, is the, the, um, the part of the stem that attaches the berry to the rachis. So if one is you know one centimeter in length and the next one is two centimeters in length, the one that's only one centimeter in length is gonna be kind of crowded behind that longer one. And so it's challenged. Um, Zinfandel, probably most uniquely in terms of its bunch morphology, develops what we refer to as a shoulder. And a lot of people get that you know, confused with wings, you know, almost all varietals. If you're going to have that conical shape, you're going to have wings that are descending in their size, which gives it the conical shape. So Zinfandel follows that routine. 
But at the top of the primary rachis, Zinfandel has an entirely secondary bunch that grows off of it. It's not a second bunch on a cane. It is part of that primary bunch. And the challenge to that is, is that it will not only you know, prevent sun exposure and wind exposure, because as those two bunches lay on top of each other, you know, you're getting a different ripening. But one of the things that we know to be true from um, my youngest brother's master's thesis that he did on Zinfandel is that having that shoulder divides the carbohydrate transfer. And so basically it's a very easy way of saying that the shoulder and the primary bunch ripen differently which leads me to another issue of Zinfandel that is not you know, related to bunch morphology, but is just part of the DNA of the grape. Zinfandel ripens unevenly. I mean, it is an absolute bastard when it comes to that. And I think the, part of the bunch morphology is related to that, um, thin skin. And so anytime you're thin skinned, you're more susceptible to dehydration. And so when you get dehydration, you're gonna get concentration of sugars. And that usually happens on the side of the bunch that's facing the sun. So there is some relation there, but there is no doubt that Zinfandel as a varietal just ripen unevenly. And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges with Zin because winemakers tend to wanna to err on the side of ripe flavors versus underripe flavors. Theoretically, we would rather have a jammy, fruit-forward wine than an herbaceous, astringent wine. In my humble opinion, I think when, when winemakers take that approach, they're addressing the symptom, not the problem. The, if you're addressing the symptom, you're saying that we just don't want to have green flavors in our wine. So they look at that as being the problem is, oh, if we you know, pick too early, you know, it's not going to have the voluptuousness we want. If you were truly addressing the problem, you would say, how do we get Zempanel to ripen homogeneously? And that's where you come back to first, the, the absolute ante into the, the game is you have to grow the perfect varietal in the perfect location. You have no chance of making great wine if you don't start there. But above and beyond that, you have to have impeccable farming practices with Zempanel. And you know, my youngest brother wrote his master's thesis on qualitative analysis of quantity yields as a function of berry size in the Zinfandel grape. And it was an amazing, amazing study. And while he did not prove what he set out to prove, what he stumbled upon and proved unequivocally is that homogenization of ripening correlates more strongly to qualitative measures than a 7% reduction in berry size or a 400% reduction in overall fruit yield. And it was a groundbreaking study. Um, he had his paper published within six months of submittal. I mean, that's how profound it was. And so you, you have to do everything in your power to get Zempanel to ripen homogeneously. And when you do that, the results are absolutely phenomenal. And I think you have the opportunity to make a wine that has as much structure, as much balance, as much complexity, and more importantly, varietal correctness as what most people would deem to be other great wines of the world. So um, kind of leads to the, the issue of Zinfandel having a low reputation um, over the last 30, 40 years, partly because of white Zinfandel, yeah. which comes from stuck fermentation, which comes from what you've been talking about, having underripe berries yeah. as part of the fermentation. And the importance of that you are in the vineyard making sure that yes. you've got high quality fruit. And it reminds me of the winemaker in South Africa I was talking to about Pinotage, and he makes really, really good pinotage. 
because Pinotage also has that low reputation. Yeah. And he was saying exactly the same as you were saying. It's got to be in the right place. Yeah. You've got to be working with it in the vineyard. You've got to make sure the berries ripen evenly so that you know when those fruit, that fruit comes in, you've got quality fruit, and then you can make quality wine. I, I always like to look at it in terms of a pendulum. You know, If you want to make great wine, it's not rocket science. Start with impeccable fruit and don't screw it up. Because I believe it to be an impossibility to take average fruit and make a great wine out of it. Now you can certainly take great fruit and screw it up, mm -hmm. but if you want to make a great wine, start with great fruit. And so, you know, back to that discussion of how challenging Zinfandel is. You know, you have to have the perfect terroir. You have to have you know the perfect varietal planted in that terroir. But your farming practices, attention to detail. And I think potential challenges with Zimpanel are just exponentially greater with, with other varietals. And it doesn't mean that someone's going to like Zimpanel any better. We like what we like. But what I hope that people take away from Zimpanel is that making a varietally correct, balanced, structured Zimpanel is an infinitely greater accomplishment than doing that with other varietals. It doesn't make it better or worse. It just means that it's a, it's a lot more work to do it. And so when do you generally pick Zimpanel? You know, um, the easiest way to explain that is I think in a perfect world, we have certain chemistry parameters that we want each varietal, and, and really that's you know misleading because we don't look at it as Zinfandel. We look at it as this block is going to have different characteristics than this block. So the easy answer is is you know when all of our chemistry parameters are within our you know desired realm, then a hundred percent of our decision to pick is based off of flavor profile. Unfortunately, that virtually never happens, you know? So that's when you're trusting yourself as a winemaker. Sometimes it tastes amazing at 23 bricks. And so you have to trust yourself to say, well, at 23, you know, we're probably gonna ferment out to right around, you know, high 13, low 14% alcohol. Is that gonna give the wine the viscosity, you know, that we want? Um, do we have developed enough phenolics at that point? Because it tastes amazing. Um, probably the bigger challenge is, is that what do you do when you're right in that sweet spot of say 24 and a half bricks and it doesn't taste good? You know, do you pick it based on the chemistry? Because mm -hmm. you know what that's going to translate out to in terms of alcohol and it's easy to look at your titratable acidity and know what balance means to us and wanting to have, you know, really balanced acidity in the wines. Or do you trust your palate and say, you know, I can't, the one thing I can't change in the fermentation process is the flavors. If the flavors aren't there, they will never be there. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. So you can dress a wine up with oak, you can you know, extract more you know, phenolics with different maceration techniques, but you will not change the flavor profile of that fruit once it's picked. And so you just really have to trust your palate and trust your knowledge of that site and the evolution of that site um, and the way it ripens. So in a perfect world, that, that chemistry parameters for us on Zinfandel, you know, it's a pretty tight window. I would say somewhere between 24 and 25 bricks. Um, we like to see our acids in a higher level. Unfortunately, we get that in Rockpile. So let's just say between, you know, 6.2 and, you know, seven grams per liter. I mean, it's not uncommon for us to pick, you know, when we have seven grams per liter of acid. And we'd like to see our pHs, 
you know, I'd like to say the pH is lower, but let's be honest, Zinfandel, you know, we're typically picking, you know, around three, four, three, five, and then we see a pH shift in tank that generally, you know, ends up around three, seven. So, you know, when we're in that parameter, in those, you know, basic chemistry parameters, 100% based off taste, but that happens much less frequently than we would like. So it's that combination of art and science again. It is. It's exactly what it is. It is you know, there's certain things, measurables, that are important. Um, that's why we spend so much time in the vineyard. Again, back to art and science. You know, we want to you know have as many data points as we possibly can, um, without you know <laughs> being uh, wasteful, if you will. I'm not going to take sugar samples every single day because at some point you're just wasting fruit and wasting time. But we want to take sugar samples at least once a week from let's say 16 bricks right in Verasion up to about two weeks before our anticipated harvest. And once we get in that two week window, so if we're talking about Zinfandel, when we start getting around 22 bricks, then we'll start sampling you know, three times a week. So basically every other day. Um, because again, the more data points that we have you know, on that graph, it helps us to predict you know, when our harvest time is um, and helps us to understand how this vineyard is reacting to episodes of heat, to cool days, to fog, and we keep all that data, you know, going back since our inception. And so we use all that historical data. Data is great, that's the scientific side of it, but at the end of the day, you have to trust your palate because you can't create something that's not there. And, you know, I think a lot of people, not to get off track, but a lot of people misunderstand, you know, the, the terminology of a flavor versus a taste. I like to say that flavors are an, is an infinite in your imagination. You know, if you taste blackberry and I taste raspberry, it doesn't mean that one of us is right or wrong because fundamentally we didn't put those things into the wine. That's just the way the vineyard expresses itself. That's what absolutely will not change. And some vineyards go through this evolution where they start with Zinfandel, you get these really high tone red fruits with this undercurrent of herbal notes and that will evolve into more dark you know berry fruits and that's the spectrum that we're looking for we don't want to ever get it into that dehydrated jammy or raisiny spectrum and you know one of the great wine epiphanies in my life was i had the chance to spend quite a bit of time with jacques lardier um, in burgundy in 2000 so very early in my winemaking career and he said something to me that I will never forget, and I'm going to shorten it because we went on to have a four-hour discussion <laughs> over it. But he said, a raisin tastes like a raisin tastes like a raisin. And he basically went on to explain that if you look at a Cabernet Berry and a Zinfandel Berry and a Pinot Noir Berry, they look totally different. They're different sizes, slightly different shapes, different colors, different thickness of skins, and totally different flavors. But if you look at a Cabernet Raisin, a Zinfandel Raisin, and a Pinot Noir raisin. Guess what? They all look like raisins and they taste like raisins. And that has been just, it was such an epiphany for me and has turned into one of our guiding principles in winemaking is if we can't pick a vineyard until 27 or 28 bricks because it doesn't have the desired flavor profile until that level, then we're growing the wrong thing in the wrong place. Because at that point, you're starting to homogenize the flavor profile into that dried fruit spectrum of a raisin, tastes like a raisin, tastes like a raisin. 
I think that you need to be able to get physiologic ripeness fairly close to 25 bricks. Sometimes it's a little bit over, sometimes it's a little bit under, sometimes it's a lot under if you're growing out on Sonoma Coast or with different varietals. But talking about red wine and Zinfandel in particular, you know, if you're having to pick, you know, at 27, 28, 29 bricks, um, my humble opinion is that you're probably growing the wrong thing in the wrong place. And again, back to that wonderful aspect of science and chemistry, you know, if you pick something, you know, at 25 bricks, you know, your potential alcohol on that wine is 15.5%. You pick something at 28 bricks, your potential alcohol is going to be in that 17 to 18 range. And so if you're not bottling at 17 or 18, what are you doing to achieve that lower alcohol? You know, you're having to manipulate it. And whether that means adding water to it or reverse osmosis or spinning cone. And I think we just start to get away from the two basic aspects of what make wine what it is, the date and the place. And if winemakers just focus on that, saying, I want to give my customer the best expression of those two things versus, you know, saying that I want to emulate XYZ style because it's popular, um, you know, I think the, the wine world would be a better place. Well, let's talk about place then and the rock pile AVA. And ironically, that's connected to Lake Sonoma, yes. <laughs> which was created on your family's land. So what makes rock pile AVA um, unique? Well, there's no doubt that I'm biased, and so you may have to take what I say with a grain of salt. Um, but rock pile is one of the most unique, spectacular places to grow grapes in the world. Um, you know, objectively, when you think about the qualifications of it, it's one of the only AVAs in America that's delineated by elevation as well as geographic boundary. All AVAs have a geographic boundary. And when you start to think about the geographic boundary, there's a really interesting aspect of rock pile as well. You know, most appellations, you know, are a valley or a county. So you either have government boundary, meaning county or state, or you have geographic boundary. So Napa Valley is defined by the watershed. If the water runs into it, it's part of Napa Valley. Russian River Valley, Alexander Valley, Dry Creek Valley. So the majority of these appellations are defined by their watershed. So again, if the water runs into it, it's part of the AVA. Rock pile is the opposite. Not only do you have to be of 800 feet in elevation, but rock pile is one singular ridge. And if the water runs off the ridge into the drainage of Lake Sonoma or the lake, it's part of the AVA. And what's unique about that is that the rock pile appellation is essentially a peninsula. You know, Lake Sonoma was created by damming up the convergence of Warm Springs and Dry Creek. So when you had these two creeks that came together, when you dammed it up, it essentially created a lake in the shape of a horseshoe. And it created that peninsula that runs down the middle. Well, one of the really fun facts about Lake Sonoma that very few people know is that at the base of the dam, it's over 220 feet deep, which is insanely deep you know, for a relatively, you know, I say small, but we'll get to that in a second, man-made lake. So when you have deep water, what does it do temperature-wise? stays very cold and very modern. It doesn't change very much. Um, Lake Sonoma, while I say small in the grand scheme of things, it's 2,500 surface acres. So it's a fairly you know, good size body of water. And again, the, the depth of it, it holds its temperature unbelievably well. So when you think about that one peninsula running down the middle of the lake, it has a very moderate climate because of the presence of that cold water. And most importantly, there is no fog during the growing season. 
comes down to the fact that you created an inversion layer because of the cold water. As the air heats up in the summer and fall and the lake stays cold, that creates that inversion layer. So you think about rock piles are only 11 miles from the ocean. So as the fog boils over from the coast and hits the water, the water sucks the fog down. So on that one ridge, you have absolutely no fog during the growing season. And if you pose this question, you know, what makes Howell Mountain, Spring Mountain, Sonoma Mountain, Atlas Peak, what makes those great places to grow grapes? Well, they have the common vein of elevation, diversity of soil, slope, drainage, sun exposure, and wind exposure. And typically higher elevations are going to have a little bit cooler climate. So we like to say that Rockpile has all those things in spades. You're essentially describing Rockpile to a T when you talk about that. But Rockpile also has no moisture in the form of fog and an even more moderate climate because you have this 2,500 gallon or 2,500 surface area lake that provides this unbelievable insulation. Yeah, and you showed me uh, pictures which are really spectacular of the fog just sitting below the vineyard. It's like, yeah. it's like a sea of fog that the vineyard it's is. It's pretty crazy. I, mean, I know our guests can't see this, but if you, uh, you know, some of my favorite pictures that we're looking at um, right now, you see how the fog just sits right on top of the water and it follows the water. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just absolutely spectacular. And, you know, Fog can be a positive aspect for growing grapes, there's no doubt about that, because it elongates the growing season. But the problem with fog is, is that it's moisture. And trust me when I say that any you know, grape grower who's being honest you know, would admit that if they could have an elongated growing season, but not because of moisture in the form of fog, they would take that. And so how many vineyards do you have in the APA? So my family, um, immediate family, owns about 85 acres of vineyard in the Rockpile Appalachian. Um, we also lease a, a fair amount of vineyard up there. And so we farm you know, somewhere around 140 um, acres in the Appalachian. And you know, understand that Rockpile is a, is a very small grape growing region. Um, there's somewhere around 210 to 220 acres total of vineyard in the AVA and you know to give you some perspective you know you think about you know Russian River Valley or Alexander Valley which each have approximately 15,000 acres of vineyard so Dry Creek with only 9,000 acres is a relatively small AVA and then you compare that to Rockpile with let's just say around 210 acres I mean it is unbelievably small um, but when you get above that elevation of 800 feet you're dealing with mountainous terrain so there's just not a lot of plantable acreage up there and which is why we have so many micro blocks at Rockpile not because we're masochistic and want to farm all these one two and three acre blocks but your plantable land at those elevations tends to be in one two three maybe four acre segments because it's just overly steep up there and so we have open here some of your single vineyard Zinfandel um, so we're going to taste those. Yes. And what they do is really express the terroir of Rockpile and of Zinfandel as well. How it can radically change in different sites even when they're right next to each other. They do. And, you know, a lot of that is just the unique characteristics of Rockpile. You know, to have so much diversity of soil, of slope, of sun exposure, of elevation. Um, the Jack's Cabin Vineyard that we're going to taste 
you know, it sits in the base of the vineyard is about 900 feet in elevation, and it runs up to about 1,000 feet in elevation. But our rock pile ridge, you know, is about 1,250 feet in elevation. So elevation does change. Our highest vineyard and rock pile is 1,400 feet in elevation. And not only does that change, you know, your temperature, but you start getting into different soil stratas. And the other thing, you know, that's unique about our approach to rock pile and approach to land in general is that, you know, we farm every ounce of rock pile with the slope. And another way you could say that is we don't terrace vineyards. And it's really for two reasons. And the first one is maybe a little bit easier to understand that part of, you know, our commitment to the land is being a great steward of it. And again, this is not to say that anyone that puts a terrace in is bad or evil or ruining the environment. It's just not the approach that we want to take. We do believe that when you're going in terracing hillsides, um, that it's kind of like raping the land. If a vineyard, if a site is too steep to plant, then don't plant it. Why someone decided that it's too steep to plant this direction, so let's cut across it. I don't know how that ever sounded like a great idea. A lot of people will put terraces in because they want to change the vine orientation. You know, they want to hit the, you know, the heat of the day, they want it to be on top of the canopy, and I certainly understand that. But by changing the vine orientation, are you making the wine better or are you making it different? And if you're changing the vine orientation, are you really paying homage to terroir? Are you paying homage to that unique site and, and what it was given? And so again, back to our approach to our land and sustainability, you know, this land has sustained our family for 150 years and now going on seven generations. That's pretty remarkable. And the reality is, is that, you know, we're in very interesting times right now with global warming and all the things going on. God only knows what this property is going to be used for for the next 150 years. It sure as hell may not be grape growing. And by being a great steward of land, we want to protect it for its best use in the future. We could go to Rockpile tomorrow. We could pull out every single grape stake and every single grapevine that we planted. And when the grass grew back, you would never know there was a vineyard there. That is being a great steward of the land. And that is entitling future generations to go back to raising livestock, to grow olives, to do God only knows what that land may provide. And then the other perspective of why we farm the way we do in Rockpile is to truly hone in on that aspect of terroir. If God gave us a southern facing slope on this site, then that's how we're going to farm it. And we're going to truly capture all the aspects that come along with it. If we have a northern facing slope that gets up to 40 degrees, then that's what we're going to plant. And again, if it's too steep to be planting, then we shouldn't be planting it. And so I think our approach to farming in Rockpile exacerbates the differences of those sites. And in the most you know, uh, honorable way of really expressing the terroir of the site. It's interesting the, the way you approach that, because like contrasting that with Germany, with their steep slopes, the reason they plant there is because nothing else will grow yeah. on those slopes. So they're using the land as much as they can, kind of being as um, efficient as possible. And I, again, I, that's why I wanted to mention that I'm not criticizing the way that other people do it. This is just our philosophy. I mean, I love, you know, I mean, I'm a huge fan of German Rieslings. And so there's something that works about that site. but. 
it is fascinating when you start to think about things like that and you know the the lens of human beings very short time on this planet and you know how do we want to be you know um, gauged and you know something that my brother you know commonly says is that you know we want to be on the right side of the equation the right side of humanity the right side of our environment and so it, it, it lends a little different perspective. And again, I'm not saying that someone who's doing it differently is doing a bad job. But if you truly believe in the adage of, you know, think globally, but act locally, um, if we apply that, that thinking to everything that we do, it makes some of those decisions a little bit easier. You know, instead of trying to eke out every little square inch of plantable acreage at what cost, you know, not only potential, you know, environmental abuses, but what happens if we create a complete monoculture of grapes? What happens if you create a complete monoculture of any one crop? You know, what does it do to the sustainability, the long-term sustainability, you know, of that area, of that community? And it's why we, you know, you, you won't hear me um, talk about biodynamics or organic farming and again I think that some of those aspects are wonderful but we really adhere to the the principles and what sustainability means because sustainability is not just about the environmental impact it's about the impact on the community which includes you know your laborers your partners and your workforce your team but there's also a financial pillar to it because you can be the best biodynamic farmer in the world, but if you can't figure out how to do it profitably, then it's all for naught because it's not sustainable. It's not going to be there in the long term. And so when we look at our businesses, that's something that we really take to heart is we want to do it the right way, but we got to make sure that doing it the right way allows for our family to continue in this industry. So thank you, Clay, for sharing your insights into Zinfandel and the challenges of working with the great variety, as well as the particularities of Rockpile AVA. In the final instalment of this interview, in the next episode, we'll look at the terroir of Zinfandel.